All right. Hey, um, Kent gave you the update. Hold on. All right, I'm back. Kent gave you the update on our building. I want to kind of give you a little bit of an update on um, some of the stuff we talked about last week um, in our congregational meeting. The elders have uh, been in conversation uh, this week with um, some, some potential uh, interim candidates and, and uh, they're doing that work great. Um, hope you got the email from this past week kind of saying if you have questions in different areas who to talk to, uh, but that is moving forward and uh, everyone is fairly confident that that is, that is not going to be an issue. We're going to have that cleared up. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can uh, look in your order of worship. It's in there. If you don't own a Bible, there are several on the back table. We would love for you to take one of those. And by Bible, I mean one that you can understand. Um, although I know that, you know, you can get pretty much any version of the Bible on your device these days. If you're anything like me, I don't know. I don't like reading on a screen. It just doesn't, I don't know. It's hard for me. So maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. And you think I'm just an old fogey. Um, I, I, I probably am at this point in my life. But anyway, uh, go ahead and you're going to want to have the Bible out in front of you today. So, um, let me say this, there, there are generally two ways to engage with criticism, okay? The first is simply to disregard it. And uh, when it comes to criticism or questions concerning the Christian faith, that is probably the most common reaction of the church. We just kind of go, I'm just not even gonna listen to that. I'm not even gonna take that seriously. Uh, that's an enemy, you know, someone, someone raises an issue, we just disregard the question. Sometimes we disregard the questioner. Right? That's a better way for us to do it because then we don't have to take their question seriously because we know that there's something. Oh, they're, they're saying this because, or they're questioning this because. The second, though, is to fully accept the premises of the question and to kind of blindly disregard uh, your position because someone has a criticism or even has taken offense. That's kind of the way that I would see like, the, like younger Christians generally going. You hear a question, you hear a concern, you hear a criticism, and suddenly you, you just, it's all valid. It's completely valid. There's no, there's no thought behind it. There's no question of it. It's just, ah, someone's upset, so this must be an objection that is true. So what we're trying to do in this series called Reconsider is simply listen to these questions. Listen to these objections. I want to take them seriously. Because these are questions that are raised most commonly by those who have left or are leaving the faith. These are questions that I hear in my conversations in our, in our city. These are questions that you probably hear or have. Um, and so we want to take them seriously. We want to see where there are perhaps misunderstandings and address them. And we want to just give them a good listen. And so over the last several weeks, we've looked at our understanding of God. Uh, we've looked at our understanding of the Bible. We've looked at the resurrection of Jesus. And this week we look um, at an objection based not on what Christians believe so much as on how they live. So if you have your place, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'd stand as, as is our habit in honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 26 to 31. This is God's word. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the nothings, to bring to nothing the somethings, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word given so that we would flourish. Pray with me, please. Uh, Lord, as we come into this time, we ask that you would unmask us. Take away those masks that we wear. Show us what is true of us so that as we see what is true of us, we might see better what is true of you. And in that delight, in you, in your character, in your love for us. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. We've all heard it. Perhaps we've said it. The church is full of hypocrites. This is so common, uh, a, a statement, that it's almost risen to the level of a truism, right? Like, it's just kind of assumed. Well, of course, it's the church. I mean, it's full of hypocrites, right? It's actually one of the things that I love the most about uh, The Simpsons is that... Um, Flanders, for all of his, Ned Flanders, for all of his silliness, is really like the nicest and best character in that entire series. So he's made fun of all the time, and yet he, well, until he like goes crazy and starts being really mean all the time. But before that, he's awesome. Um, and, but the idea of, of the church being full of hypocrites is common, and proof of that statement can be found everywhere. I'm old enough, and some of you are old enough, to remember a certain TV preacher by the name of Jimmy Swaggart on television, sobbing, a guy who had railed against the sexually immoral for years, had made a, built a ministry on it, built a lot of wealth on it, up on TV, sobbing, talking about how he had sinned and committing adultery, right? Some of us have been, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you've been listening to the, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the Mars Hill podcast, right? So you've heard about all the hypocrisy in, in the pastorate there, Mark Driscoll, preaching a gospel of grace and then slamming people over and over for not being able to perform up to his standards. We've had a long line of high-profile pastors with moral failures. And then you hear stories of people in churches where, where it's, view, where it's um, seen as sinful to like view certain kinds of movies or to go to certain kinds of establishments, and so they, they drive to other towns to do that so that no one recognizes them when they go in. It's easy, isn't it? It's such a powerful objection to faith that it's just full of, churches full of hypocrites that people with no experience of the hypocrisy of Christians, which not everyone has that experience. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying you don't, not everyone has it, but even those who don't have experience of it simply assume it to be true. The important part of this objection, in fact, is the definition. What does it mean to be a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? And so what we're gonna do over the next 35 or so minutes is we're gonna look at hypocrisy as a human problem. And then we're gonna look at how God solves it, okay? We're gonna look at it as a human problem, then we're gonna look at how God solves it. If you like to take notes, there's an outline. If not, don't worry about it. Well, let's start with the problem. And let's start with the church's problem. First, let's clearly define what hypocrisy is, right? Some of you know the etymology and all this stuff, where the word comes from. It comes from uh, Greek in which it talks about actors wearing masks. And so 
Hypocrisy is the notion of publicly presenting one face or one image of yourself while acting either privately or in some other contexts in a way that is contrary to the image you normally show. Make sense? You're one way here and you have an image and you project it and you maybe rail on certain things and then in private or in somewhere else, you're completely different. Right? So for instance, the person who publicly rails on the notion that you can't be a Christian and drink alcohol while enjoying beer regularly at home. Or maybe the person who uh, self-righteously condemns those sexually immoral sinners out there while secretly enjoying his pornography addiction. See, there are two components to hypocrisy that are important. The first is the presentation of oneself as beyond sin. Or perhaps in particular, a particular sin. I'm beyond this issue. The second is the actual practice of said sin or something similar. You see that? This is important for us to realize. Because hypocrisy, for it to be hypocrisy, has to have both. Right? To say something is sin doesn't make you out to be a hypocrite. To say this particular behavior or act is wrong in the eyes of God is not to be a hypocrite. That's simply stating something, right? And to be broken and needy doesn't make you a hypocrite. You have to have both. You have to be a broken and needy person who says that you're not a broken and needy person. You have to be someone who struggles with things while also saying, I would never struggle with things and those people that do are doomed. You see the difference? They have to have both. Now, here's the reality. This is a huge issue in the church. We're not gonna pretend it's not. It's a huge issue in the church. There are lots of reasons for, for this, some of which we're gonna deal with in a minute, but we need to simply acknowledge that there are tons of hypocrites in the church. Okay? It shouldn't be threatening. It's true. There are tons of hypocrites in the church with a big C. There are tons of hypocrites probably right here. It's okay. Calm down. It's going to be fine. Anytime Christians declare their righteousness or goodness as based on their spirituality, their moral effort, and their life choices, and then either imply or state very clearly that the position of others, where others are at in their life, is based on their inability to get it right, we open ourselves up to hypocrisy. You with me? Okay, but here's the deal we need to see. This is not a Christian problem. This is a human problem, okay? Hypocrisy is not somehow just in the church, it's outside the church as well. Again, hypocrisy is all about presenting a fake front, being inconsistent with our moral outrage, and Christians aren't the only ones who have moral outrage, are we? You see, when, when we, we, we can see this when we hear of the person proclaiming how understanding and tolerant they are, but refusing to even listen to, and sometimes even shouting down those who believe things different than them. They're tolerant and accepting until they meet someone who they think isn't tolerant or accepting. And then it's okay to not be tolerant or accepting of them, right? We see this in folks 
railing against those who don't think climate change is man-made while having a carbon footprint the size of Texas because of their private jet flights. We see this in politicians who criticize those in parties for lying to the public. And yet, when they are caught in a lie, they proclaim they'll do whatever it takes to win elections. We see it in people who criticize the greedy but are not generous because they don't make enough money to be. Right? Hypocrisy isn't a Christian problem. It's a human problem. Now, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, Rick, but it's worse with Christians because of what they claim about their standing with God. I totally agree with you, though perhaps for different reasons. So to begin with, let's get some clarification, okay? When we deal with hypocrisy in the church and the world, and especially when we're dealing with the criticism of Christian hypocrisy, there's a particular logic involved that we need to expose so we can engage with it. The logic of this is, the logic of hypocrisy in its religious form is the idea that God's affection for you and your standing with him is determined by your behavior for him. You see that? If God likes you because of what you do, if God loves you because of how you behave and yet you don't behave right and you claim that God is for you, hypocrisy. If you rail on those who aren't behaving and then claiming that you are and yet you aren't, be hypocritical, right? That's the logic. Now, some of you are thinking, Rick, isn't that just self-evident? I mean, you're a preacher of Christianity. Isn't that your position? Well, in short, no. No, it's not. But I want to speak to more of that in a second. That's in its religious context, and it's less religious logic. It's similar. It's basically this. I am right, or I am in the right, because of what I do. I am in the right because of what I do. And you see... The weird thing about hypocrisy in all of its forms is that it seems to be a way of struggling with this innate feeling that we're not right, that we're not in the right, that something is wrong. Perhaps it's even something moral. And that's why all of us, Christian or not, get defensive when someone points out our inconsistencies. That's why, Christian or not, we begin to do gymnastics when someone does that over image control. Listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, not everyone is, so if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why that is? I mean, who cares about your image anyway? Why, why is that a problem? Why, not just why is it a problem with you, but why is it a problem with, like, Everybody. Think with me. Why is it that we can declare that morality and truth are relative and yet seek so hard to maintain an image of keeping our cultural mores? Whether that's because we like the right posts, right? We've made sure that everyone knows that we're for whatever three-letter acronym is of the day. We rail against those who don't who don't like those posts or don't have those acronyms, those folks that are acting one way in public and another in private, I mean, does it even make sense? See, anytime when we believe we have to cover our own failures, 
we betray something at a deeper level than what we say. The Bible teaches that this belief is that there is something wrong with us. And that something is that we're not right before God. Now, some of you don't believe that, but as I've said throughout this series, and listen close, because this is really important, it is not enough to just say, nuh-uh. I give it, I get it. You don't believe our particular reason that we think this is true. It's not enough to just say, nuh-uh. There has to be one that you find more compelling. What is the reason that you find more compelling? What is the viable alternative? Why is this experience of hiding our failures and promoting our successes so universal to humanity? Sure, the definitions of failure and successes may change culture to culture, time after time, but the fact of wanting to keep ourselves looking good in front of others, keep ourselves looking good in general, hasn't. Why? I mean, my truth isn't your truth and your truth isn't their truth and who cares, right? See, the Bible says that this is because we know deep down that our relationship with God has been fractured by our betrayal of him, by turning away from him to seek our autonomy, our independence from him. Now, here is where that logic I talked about takes over and things go off because we assume then that the answer has to be, I need to be better, but is that the Christian answer? That's the logic, the religious logic, that's, that's kind of the assumption of all Christians are hypocrites. But is that the answer? Well, let's look at the letter of the Corinthians to figure that out, shall we? Now, before I get to the letter itself, let me set this up. First uh, Corinthians is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, the earliest writings of the New Testament. It's written by this guy by the name of Paul. Um, Paul grew up in a... Um, at, not in a fanatical home, but as a fanatic in his home. He grew up as a, as a fanatic. He, 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 was, he says at some point that he was so Jewish, I was so good at keeping the rules that you could look at me and go, he doesn't mess up. He keeps them. Not many people could claim that. He seems to claim that. So much so that he was willing to go after under, uh, by, by both threatening harm and threatening imprisonment to Christians because he thought they were making things impure. And yet, when he writes about the fact that he was so good at keeping the rules, he says that after he became a Christian, he, he came to view all that rule keeping as garbage. So maybe this passage will help us see why. Look down at verses 26 to 29. It says this, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now stop there. Here's what Paul is doing. Corinth, the city of Corinth, was a city dominated by self-promotion. And by that, what I mean is, culturally, it was not only okay, but it was expected that you promote yourself. You would literally pay to have people put statues of you on corners, promoting your awesomeness. I think I said that last week. And so the Christians in this town are beginning to think very highly of themselves. They've adopted a little too much of their culture. We never do that, of course, but they did. And they're dividing up the church based on whether they, what, no matter, or they're dividing the church based on what they bring to the table. What do I bring to the table? What gifts do I have? And so here's what Paul's doing. 
Paul is pointing out exactly what they brought to the table. They weren't wise, they weren't powerful, and they weren't noble. Now, all of these would have been very important things for Corinthians in the first century because Corinth was a college town, a college town that very much respected its understanding of learning and of wisdom. So to say you weren't wise is to say it's not like you were the smart ones in this college town. You weren't the smartest. It was an upwardly mobile town, a place where one of the few places in the Roman Empire where you could go from pauper to prince, where you could actually be someone in the quote-unquote rising middle class because there wasn't that in the Roman Empire. So to say that you weren't powerful speaks to that. And it was a politically important town. So you were noble, though that's really important. They weren't any of these things, but keep reading. Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, He chose what is low and despised in the world. And the ESV says, even the things that are not, it literally means the nothings, to bring to nothing the things that are or the somethings. See what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that the reason that they are Christians is because they weren't these other things. You with me? Paul is saying that the reason that you are all in the faith is because you weren't wise, powerful, noble, because you didn't have anything to bring to the table. Far from being the place where you find the moral exemplars that aren't weak, Paul is saying is the church, that the church is where you will find the opposite of that. You will find the people who can't get their stuff together. You will find the people who don't seem to be able, it's not that they're not smart, it's not that they're not these, it's that, are they the best of the best of the best? No, of course not. And then he finishes with, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now that's an interesting statement, so stick with me. Like I said before, in Corinth, the concept of boasting was a moral good. It was supposed to be a good thing for you to boast about how awesome you were. Some people didn't have much to boast about, but they had to boast about something. So it would be like me standing up here telling you how great I think I am and then, and then offering for, for, you know, Abe to come up next. Abe has, no, you know, he, he, he of course would be humble. But then we start going through the congregation and that's what it is. It is a moral good to boast, to brag Self-promotion is expected, but according to Paul, that is the exact wrong posture before God. Remember what we said about hypocrisy. It is, in a sense, creating a context for us to be able to boast. We proclaim how great we are when we cover our failures. God likes me because I'm awesome. And the reason he doesn't like you is because you're not awesome like me. Until someone finds out where we're not awesome. But here, Paul is saying that God chose those who weren't awesome so that there couldn't be any boasting in them, but only in him. 
Now, if you're thinking right now, this messes up the logic he talked about earlier, that God's love for us, God's care for us, our status before him is somehow based on our behavior, you're absolutely right. So what do we do with that? Because we still have our desire to be in the right, which we normally deal with through hiding and pretending. So what does Christianity do with that? Well, look down at verses 30 and 31. And if you have your Bible, I would invite you to underline something. He says, because of him, underline that, because of him. When he says him, he's talking about Jesus or God the Father, just God in general. You could say it was just, you could just say God and you'd be fine. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. See, here is why, this is why hypocrisy is out of place in Christianity. So follow me for a second because there's lots of churchy words in this. Let's come back to the first phrase, okay? Paul says, it is Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Here's Here's what that means. Conventional wisdom says, God will like you if you do right, right? I don't really care what image of God you have in your head. Conventional wisdom says God likes you if you do right. It says you must be better, so get your stuff together. But Paul is saying that Jesus became wisdom from God. And what that means is the gospel proclaims that you and I and everyone in the world is needy, broken, and in need of rescue. Everything in us says what we need to do is change our behavior. The assumption of hypocrisy is that we need to change our behavior, but the gospel tells us that our problem goes deeper than our behavior. And that wisdom from God has shown that in Jesus, or that Jesus has become our righteousness. That is churchy language. Righteousness is a churchy word for being in the right before God. In the right before God. In other words, our rightness before God comes from Jesus and not from you. From Jesus and not from us. But he goes on. He's also become our sanctification. That is churchy language for being set apart for God. Right? To be sanctified is to be set apart. In other, and, and, and so we tend to think that our behavior is what sets us apart. I'm set apart because I'm a nice guy. I'm set apart because I'm moral. But again, here it is totally on Jesus. And lastly, he says that Jesus has become our redemption. Redemption is the language of rescue. It is literally the language of being taken from slavery and brought into freedom. In other words, Jesus is the one who has rescued us from our deepest problem. And then Paul concludes. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you see the words, as it is written, that is a clue that Paul is um, quoting from the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. This particular passage is from Jeremiah 9, where um, God lays out a few dudes. He says, um, don't let the rich dude boast in his richness, the strong dude in his strongness, the wise dude in his wisdom. He says, if you're going to boast, don't boast in those things. Boast in the fact that you know me. And the reason for that, the reason it's quoted there, the reasons why it's stated here is because that gets to the core problem because Christianity declares that you and I are desperately needy because the problem is not our morality, it's our independence, our our independence from God. And so for some of us in this room, we do the independent thing in uh, moral ways, in churchy ways, in religious ways. More than likely, if that's true, let me be honest with you, you're probably 
someone who is in danger of being pointed out to be hypocritical at times. Some of us do that in immoral ways. And let me be honest with you, if that's the case, then people are going to notice that you say one thing on Sunday and do other things throughout the week. You're in danger of being shown up too. We practice it differently, but we all want a status, a status, a satisfaction, and even safety apart from him. Jesus is core to Christianity, not because of what he taught, but because of what he did. In Jesus, God came in the flesh to live perfectly for us, to die in our place because of what we've done. So for the Christian, our hope is not in our ability to get it right, because we can't. Our hope is in Jesus. So Paul is saying, for the Christian, our boast is in Jesus, because it's in him that we find our rightness, our set-apartness, and our savedness, and not in what we've done. Because if it's in what we've done, then we're all still stuck. Okay? Now, let's conclude really quick by talking about what, what it means to be rightly labeled. Hypocrisy is out of place in Christianity, not because we should be so good. Listen, look at me. Not because we should be so good that we are above the charge of inconsistency. That's what we think though, isn't it? That if I'm not gonna be charged as a hypocrite, what I need to do is I just need to make sure that my life looks so exemplary that no one could ever level a charge, right? That's what we tend to think. But for the Christian, hypocrisy is out of place because we freely admit that we are needy and broken and inconsistent creatures trusting only in what Jesus has done for us. As a matter of fact, if you are here this morning and you claim to be a Christian but cannot openly declare that truth, that you are broken and needy and lost without his work, then let me be honest with you. You may not be a Christian. Here's what I mean. If you're trusting in your abilities, then one of two things will be true of you. You will be confident, but not humble, because you trust in your ability to minimize your failures and maximize your strengths. Or you'll be humble, but not confident, because your failures can't be covered over. They're so big and so bad and so terrible. Like you just don't think there's any way that you can be accepted. But if you put your trust in Jesus then you can be both confident and humble. You can be confident because you know you're standing before God is not because of you. It's not because you did it right. It's not because you cleaned up nice. It has nothing to do with you. And so you can be confident. I know that I will stand before the face of God forever. Not because, and someone goes, how can you possibly say that? I couldn't if it had to do with me. If it has to do with me, like I got no hope. Because I'm way more messed up than the rest of you. So I can be confident, but I can also be humble because I can go, it has nothing to do with me. Well, Rick, I see this in your life. You're right. Rick, sometimes you're cold, aloof, and you make people feel like they're, they're not, they're, you don't really care for them. You're right. I'm sorry. I do that. 
I do that. And Jesus is still at work. Right? If you put your trust in Jesus, if you receive both his sacrifice for his failures and your life for his rightness, then you can be both confident and humble. And some of you are like, Rick, you don't really believe that. You don't really believe what you just said, that, that you're way more messed up than the rest of us. You don't believe, you don't actually believe that, like, uh, there but for the grace of God go I. Yeah, I do. Listen, at the end of the day, I truly believe that every one of us, if not including maybe especially myself, is capable of pretty much anything. And you may be thinking like, well, that's not true. There are some bright lines for me. Like, here's some bright lines. I would never do that. If you're young, you don't have kids yet, I know what one of those bright lines is. I would never be violent towards my child. And then, when your three-year-old is throwing things, breaking things, won't stop screaming, doesn't want to listen, you're on three hours of sleep, and you can't, all of a sudden, you understand. And you, you probably won't do it, but you understand, don't you? You get it. Now, sure, there may be some bright lines, but that doesn't mean that what we would be seeking if we cross that bright line, we aren't seeking in some other way. Okay? I am a deeply needy man. You are deeply needy people. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think it's a joke that I'm up here doing what I'm doing. God has a great sense of humor. But then I read this passage and I realize this is totally why I'm up here doing what I'm doing. Because why not put the neediest, brokenest person up here to try and do it? Because it's like, hey, if God can rescue me, y'all are good. Like, we're great. But listen, maybe you're not buying this. Let me conclude with this. If you think Christians are hypocrites because we admit that we're broken, but that we freely have received God's grace, then I would say two things. One, that is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is only if we claim that God's love for us was based on something we've done, which it isn't. It's totally of God, and all we do is receive it through Jesus. But two, and maybe this is more important, if you think that is what it means to be a hypocrite and a hypocrite in the church, come on in. We have plenty of room for more hypocrites. Plenty. And if we're being honest, and I want you to be, you know that you're in that same place. The hypocrisy is the idea that we have to hide our failures and promote our successes, but the gospel does the opposite. It allows us to be authentic by being honest about our failures and promoting Jesus. And if that is true, if it is true that at the end of the day, all you need before God is your need, isn't that worth reconsidering? you pray with me? 
Forgive us, Lord, because so often we don't believe that that's all we need. We think we need that, but we also need to be culturally relevant. Or we need to be that, but we also need to be political or moral exemplars. Or we need that, but we have to vote a certain way. And we need that, and we have to... Lord, I, I just ask you to convince us that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Convince us of that. Our hearts are desperately wandering from it. So convince us of it for our good, for your glory's sake, that you would receive all of the boast. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.